This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. My name is Kev Lochin and I'm joined in the studio today by Sky Night Magazine news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. And editor assistant Ian Todd. Hello. Second episode, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Feels like we need to have a subtitle, kind of going down that Star Wars vibe. Mm. Yes. Haven't got there yet, have we? <laughs> <laughs> we thought about this earlier. Didn't quite go. Radio Astronomy episode two, awkward sequel. <laughs> big, big stuff happening in space. Um. Well, let's leave that as a launch pad. Uh Because there has been quite a bit of uh, big stuff happening in space. The biggest thing, we won't do on this too long probably, is Tim Peake has returned from the ISS after a six-month Principia mission. Yes, yes he has. So when was that, touchdown 18th of June? It was, yep, 18th of June. um, Saturday, I think it was. Um. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Early in the morning. 
slightly early in the morning. Yeah. Well, it was on half the world away. Yes. Um, but yeah, he's back. He's readjusting to life on Earth and our wonderful gravity. Um, he's already said, I don't know if you heard, that he wants to go back. He'd go back in a heartbeat. Yes. Well, he was saying when he landed that it was like having the worst hangover ever. And now he's gone back to, I want to go back. So Is that because he has the worst <laughs> hangover ever? <laughs> I, suppose I suppose it's hair of the dog, really, isn't it? Yeah. That's uh, that's a long that's a long readjustment period, isn't it? Though, um, but he's already asked his wife. He says he's absolutely happy to go back. So maybe maybe we'll see him in Mars in uh, the twenty thirties. Who knows? Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we best move on from Tim for a moment, so I can tell you what's coming up in the show. We're going to hear from Pete Lawrence, of course, of the Sky Night TV show. He's going to be telling us about how you can see the moon illusion for yourself. And we're also going to be talking to, or Ezzy's going to be talking to, Brad Gibson of Hull University about what astronomy has done for us. Now, you saw him at Cheltenham. You didn't see him at Cheltenham. He was at Cheltenham. Yes. You were at Cheltenham, but not <laughs> well, at the same time. was on a different time. day, yes. How was Cheltenham, the Cheltenham Science Festival? It was, it was really good. I, I learned lots of stuff there. What did you learn? Um, well, I learned, uh, I went to a talk by the people at Virgin Galactic who were talking about their all their plans for, for what the new space plane is going to be. 2017. 2017 is when they are hoping to be able to start flying people. Amazing. Yes. Uh, where will that actually take its passengers to? So it's a suborbital flight. So what it does is it goes up, and they have three rules about what counts as a space flight um, in space tourism. It, you have to have five minutes of weightlessness, you have to be able to look down and see the Earth, and you have to be able to look down and see the curvature of the Earth. And those are kind of the three big things that people want when they go up in space. Cool. Yes. Um, But if you can't afford that, they will be having several of their space planes kitted out with experiment racks, and there'll be space for two experimenters, um, scientists, to go up with those experiments. So if you want to get a free trip to the edge of space... Learn science. Yeah, start studying science. (laughs) Um, I also heard from the people at the Sky at Night TV show. Um, They had Marek Kula there from the Royal Observatory Greenwich and Lucy Green um, talking about Planet Nine. Um... And it certainly, they, they seemed very convinced that it's probably out there. Apparently, they tried quite hard and they couldn't find anybody to sort of concretely say that there wasn't a Planet Nine. So it certainly seems like people are at least cautiously optimistic. There was speculation of there might be Planets 10 and 11 as well. This isn't part of news bingo, not giving anything away. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's new things. There's new evidence that's coming out that maybe there might be even more out there. So it'll be exciting times ahead. Um, they reckon that if they is a planet nine they should be able to find it within the next 10 years Um, when the large synoptic survey telescope comes online that should be able to find it so that's quite exciting which you can read all about in our current issue Yes, exactly. Good plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also had a talk about Life on Other Planets by uh, Louisa Preston, um, where I found out that bears can survive in space. Microscopic water bears, but still, bears. <laughs> they sound great when you call them water bears, don't they? Do you know what they're actually called? They've got some really long uh, technical name I can't remember. Tardigrades. Tardigrades. Right, yeah. It just makes them sound as gross as they look. Yeah, yeah. I think they look kind of cute in a weird in a weird, <laughs> slightly creepy kind of way. If they were made yeah. into a cuddly toy, they would probably be quite cute. Apparently there are. There are water bear cuddly toys. Cool. Yeah. Why? Why would you do this? They have micro-robes, like, like our cuddly toys. I might have some of them. 
<laughs> so this is a good time to leave that where it is and move straight on to the main news. Now we're talking about before we came to the studio, the kind of two stories we were talking of the main one, a kind of Einstein double whammy. One is the um, the second detection of gravitational waves, mm-hmm. and uh, the universe seems to be expanding a bit faster than we thought it was. Yeah, it's bit between five and nine percent faster. Um, well, between five and nine percent faster than the measurements that we'd kind of taken of um, of the universe. You know, shortly after the Big Bang. Yeah. Um, measurements have been taken by ESA and NASA um, space space telescopes. Um, but it's basically all to do with the Hubble constant, and I'm sure Ezzy will be able to um, fill us in a bit more or, or correct me if, if anything I say is, is particularly wrong. <laughs> There's good facial expressions going on from Ezzy here, the throwing under the bus look coming straight on. But um, is, is it 5 to 9%? Is that significant, or is that just a, like a big number that's got a bit bigger? Say. Well, I think it's it's really to do with what's what's causing it. I think it, it, I don't really think mm. it's because because all we can really do is make the number more accurate. Um, so I think it's really to do with um, what's what's causing that. Um, and there are kind of three ideas. It could be um, one of the three darks, basically. <laughs> dark energy, dark matter, or dark radiation. Mm. Um, and so it, it's, it's really about kind of um, wh- why this is happening rather than the fact that it is happening because this might tell us something about uh, the effect that uh, dark energy is having on the expansion of the universe. You know, perhaps uh, dark matter acts in some kind of way that we don't yet understand and that's what's causing it. So it's kind of get, trying to get the story behind it to find out what's causing it, I think. Yeah, also, if, if they've changed the Hubble constant, the Hubble constant is in everything as soon as you start getting over a certain scale. So it's it's quite a big deal to get that number as precise as possible because you can't really start working out what's going on until you know what's going on. And, <laughs> um, of course, the other thing is gravitational waves, which we've had the second detection of. Is that more important than...? It's yes and no. Um, basically, this this second detection a really sort of hammers down the sort of observatory part of um, LIGO. So LIGO was the thing that discovered it. It's called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. There's two of them, right? They're and split. There's two. Yes, they are apart. on either side of the United States, I believe. Um, and they are thinking about building a third one in India and possibly somewhere else in the globe. More on that later. Um, So they discovered uh, another set of uh, gravitational waves um, three months after the initial um, discovery. This one was in uh, late December, the 26th. It was, again, from two binary black holes that were circling around each other and and kind of smushed together. Technical term, smushed. Smushed. Um, (laughs) Collided, I believe, is the word. Uh, And this created a whole bunch of gravitational waves. Um, They were... Smaller mass than the ones that we saw in September. Um, but that actually means that they stood out more just because where the waves hit is in the bit of the gravitational waves range, which it can see more precisely. So actually, right. these ones, they could see clearer than the big ones. Okay. <laughs> but the really important thing about this is it starts to hammer in the fact that we can detect these gravitational waves. They are relatively common. We saw one within three months. So it's quite likely that we're going to start seeing more and more as the observatory goes. So basically it's not a fluke. No, it's not a fluke. One. It's not just they happened to switch it on before the once in a century thing occurred. These things are quite common. So that's good to know. Um, they didn't build a you know multi-billion pound observatory 
for to pick up one. They're, they're probably, pick up they're probably a space one as well, a space uh, gravitational yeah. wave. They've, they've actually sent up one, well, sort of, uh, called Lisa Pathfinder, which is the testing sort of... It's basically. like a technology demonstrator. Yeah, tech, tech demonstrator. Um, and that's up there, and it's doing its thing, and everything seems to be working well. Um, and they hope to, in a couple of decades, probably, if we're realistic, fly Lisa, um, which is a space-based observatory. The fact that they've discovered these, um, it means that, A, it's getting more publicity, so people know more about it. So it, it's making it increasingly likely that the actual Lisa will fly as well. So that's good. I think it's actually kind of good, just in case anyone's kind of not aware of the Lisa Pathfinder story, I think it's cool to kind of consider what it actually is, because it's actually like um, gold-plated cubes that are being allowed to freefall in space, and they're being allowed to freefall in space because they're surrounded by a spacecraft that's able to um, adjust. So it's basically covering the cubes but not touching them right. so, so that we can be sure that no, nothing else from, like no light or radiation is causing the cubes to move. Yeah. And therefore we know that we can get um, the free fall accurate enough that any any disturbance has to be a gravitational wave. Yeah. It's absolutely I think it's crazy. actually, it's, it's gold and platinum cubes because apparently we like our space bling. You know, <laughs> Gold-plated JWST, but it is, a, it is an amazing piece of engineering going on up there. That's ridiculous. So, what stops those cubes from hitting the inside of the spacecraft? The um, spacecraft itself realizing and maneuvering around them. Yeah, it's it's basically they make sure that it, as it's in orbit, the orbits are so neatly aligned that everything goes at once. That is remarkably clever. Yes, and a little bit Skynet. A li- <laughs> always a little bit when your technology is cleverer than you are you get a little bit scared <laughs> um, shall we move on to news bingo okay Yay. so um to recap i'm going to be asking you a question i've got three this month three questions about news stories mm-hmm. that i would hope you know about you both write news for sky night magazine mm-hmm. uh see who gets the most last time as you try up two one, and we definitely aren't keeping yeah. score. Apart from the fact that on the board downstairs, I'm keeping score. Yes. <laughs> so let's go on with it. You've got pads in front of you, so I do. Yes. you don't need to shout out and uh, give the game away to each other. So first one: Why are astronomers so excited about some rain they found elsewhere in the cosmos? There's rain all over the cosmos. Okay, sorry. Yes, but this is rain in a really weird place you wouldn't expect. Okay. Which actually, I'm giving it away. Okay. So, hit me. Don't hit me. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, well, my guess is that it was this the story about uh, kind of cosmic gas, like a cosmic gas cloud raining into a supermassive black hole. Absolutely right. Yay, my blind guess was right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it absolutely is that, uh, well... Gas has been raining, in yeah. very loose terms, into yeah. a black hole. So, this is super confusing. The black hole in question is in the Able 2597 Brightest Cluster Galaxy, which is in a galaxy cluster called Able 2597. <laughs> because, you know, naming things wasn't so arbitrary. As if there's one thing that astronomers know how to do well, it's label things confusingly. But I thought it's kind of like <laughs> these 14 kind of alphanumeric designators were, like, too much. And it's like, oh, we'll give it a proper name, that's great. You've named it the same thing as the thing it's in. It's so yeah. confusing. Yeah. But, um, so, yes, this rain isn't liquid water at all, as you'd expect on Earth, but massive 
massive clumps of cold gas that uh, is formed into these three huge clouds around a black hole that is, well, each one has about a million times more material than our sun. Um, now, do of you know how gas can rain? It's, it's usually when they say something like that, it's it's being a bit poetic. What they really mean is that gas is flowing onto the black hole um, in clumps or something like that. This is in the words of uh, Grant Tremblay of Yale University, who is uh, one of the lead authors of the study. He's saying that this is a very, very hot gas. It's hot gas in between the galaxies uh, that quickly cools and condenses and then precipitates in much the same way that warm, humid air on Earth does, spawning these rain clouds. Mm. But apparently they've um, thought this existed for a long time. This is just the first mm. direct observation of it, which I am astounded by. It, well, that kind of thing happens all the time in, in astronomy because it's, it's just, you can hypothesise all of these weird and crazy things that come out of all of these equations and stuff, but quite often you don't find it until you find it by chance. Right. You ready for the next one? Okay. Yep. So... How long will it be until aliens contact us, according to the most recent estimate? Ez Penn uh, straight away, though. I knew that one. Uh, oh, Ian, this looks painful. No. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I've got it. I think I got, a, I got a brief glimpse of this story, so I think I've got it. What's up when you're around here, just before we start recording? <laughs> just, you know, checking for the issue no. to see what's going on. Right, so, Ian, come on then. What's your guess? Uh, is it 1,500 years? I mean, it's precisely. And as you know yes, that straight away. Yes, it's 1,500 years. Yeah. Do you know why? That is how long it takes the first radio, TV, electromagnetic signals that we've been sending out since the invention of the radio to, I think it was reach half the Milky Way? Something like that. Yeah. It's all about likelihood. Yes. They said the first um, television and radio signals that were strong enough to leave Earth's atmosphere um, were sent out about eight years ago. I think it was the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Mm -hmm. That sounds about right. But anyway, in the 80 light years of Earth, you've got something in the region of 8,500 stars, 3,500 planets, which is such a tiny fraction of the potential stars and planets that um, this guy's basically saying um, these researchers are saying that the Fermi paradox and saying oh there's so many potential habitats mm -hmm. where yeah. are all the aliens it's not enough yeah. to find them yet well, yeah because it's there was another bit of, of that story which is something called the, I think it's like the mediocrity principle it's exactly that yes which is basically Earth's really really boring we're just around a regular star, we're a regular kind of planet, and apart from the fact that we have, you know, all of this life stuff all over the place, it's just really boring here. <laughs> but also that anywhere else would follow the same thing. So it's not like mm. uh, there might be these super advanced civilizations. The likelihood is yeah. that everyone's kind of the same average. Yeah. The flip side of this is, I did wonder, that it raises the possibility that in one and a half thousand years, when aliens do come. It won't be uh, for war or for peace or for exploration. It will be because they want to know why their favourite and now centuries-old TV show has been cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, doesn't mean we can abandon the search for life. I don't know why I say unfortunately. It's not unfortunate <laughs> at all. But uh, because even though this, it, this is like a prediction, isn't the likelihood of 1,500 years, mm. you could still find life at any time. There's no reason why it can be the next planet you uh, discover. Yeah, exactly, mm. yeah. 
Yeah. It's, I, the thing that I was really surprised about was the fact that the signals already reached, what was it, I think they said three and a half thousand Earth-like planets. Yes. I didn't think it was anywhere near that much. So that was quite a big surprise to me. I guess that figure's always going to go up, even if the radio waves didn't travel any further, because we're getting better and better and finding Earth-like planets. Mm-hmm. I think that number's based on sort of estimates and stuff, so that might change uh-huh. as we, we get a better handle of what's out there. But... Still. There's another variant of this where you can uh, chart what songs are at which planets now based <laughs> on, like, you know, so, you know, so many lighters away, they're still dancing to the 60s. <laughs> so, really good. But our last one, and you're level pegging at the moment, so this is, uh, yeah, this is uh, where it gets interesting, possibly. It's our and finally story. I'm going to try and get one of these in every month. So... What has NASA succeeded blowing up on the second attempt? Okay. Succeeded in blowing up. Succeeded in blowing up on the second try. Ian's writing an essay. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to think. This isn't writing anything. Just trying to think how to to term it. Mm. Right, let's go. Is this the like the the inflatable living quarters oh, on the ISS? Yes, it absolutely is. Yay. I was being a bit naughty with the wording, but as I can see, has uh, <laughs> decided to pass on that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it's called Beam. Actually, it's the first inflatable module for the ISS. Uh, I think it stands for what was it? Biggable Expendable Activity Module. But it's like a four by three meter habitat they want to stick mm-hmm. on the outside yeah. and. Test. Would you guys be happy enough sleeping in a kind of space bag? A space bag. <laughs> That's they are being very, very <laughs> careful with it. It's kind of they've they've got people are going to be going into it once or twice every few months to to have a look around. In the rest of the time, it's kind of shut down and locked off in case yeah. something goes wrong. But it doesn't change the fact that it is a a wire frame, slightly stronger than a wire frame, but you know, a frame with a lot of fabric around it. And I actually looked at the specs for this before we did the podcast, and it just says several layers of fabric. Mm. So... I, I think I have uh, somewhere I've seen the sort of they've done the kind of like composite, like various layers um, sort of set out at a museum or something. And there's a lot of layers going on there. There's a lot of stuff, and it, it looks pretty rigid. I mean, you know, the the steel that makes up the the hull of the International Space Station. Yeah. That that still gets these dents put in it by um, micrometeoroids. It's not just because it's solid, it's going to completely protect you. So both of them are equally as dangerous as each other is what I'm trying to say there. Um. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking like that picture Tim Peake posted about, a, was it, it was a few weeks ago, of the, um, the chip in the cupola window. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean... You know, if there's kind of chips in the glass, is it's like a big bouncy castle hanging on the end of the ISS. <laughs> really, the safest thing to to to, to construct. Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those things that if if something's big enough to to cause you trouble, hopefully they should be able to see it. And if they can't, not really much they can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> they won't see it. It's a bag. It doesn't have windows. <laughs> have other instruments on board. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's actually, they only inflated on the second attempt. They, had to, mm. they couldn't get up the first time because um, it had been in storage for far too long, so they said. But um, then when they did it, they said it inflated to the sound of popping corn. 
Really? Which I thought for a, for a kind of an inflatable would actually be quite disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but going back to that uh, Tim Peake thing we're talking about, so another one of the things he said is when the, uh, the Soyuz was coming down, they actually blow up the pyrotechnic bolts. They'd kind of blow off to kind yeah. of jettison the car. And he's like, oh, it's like a bang going up by the side of your head. It's like, that, you've got to have some good confidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would hope that when they do all their training missions and stuff, they, they put in those noises so do- somebody doesn't go, oh, no, there's been a big bang. Though I have, I have heard stories from people who were on the shuttle who were going up and would... It was so loud and so noisy and so shaky. They were actually sitting there waiting for it to blow up around them because they thought, this can't be right, something must have gone wrong. But actually, no, it's just really loud. Whoa. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That would be pretty scary. Um, Ian, you've won. (laughs) Yay. You've won to a victory lap. Yeah. Can't believe it. (laughs) So it was one all then? There still wasn't a trophy. I'm really sorry. Um... Maybe next time, Gadget. Um, maybe next time. Right, so it's time, about the time we heard from Pete Lawrence, who's going to tell us what we can see in the sky this month. The moon illusion is an effect which makes the moon look artificially large when it's in its fuller phases and close to the horizon. The summer months are a particularly good time to see this effect because the moon is in the southern part of the sky, close to the southern ecliptic. And that means that when it rises, it takes its time as it's heading up above the horizon. So it takes a while for it to actually get to a decent altitude. So it stays relatively close to the horizon and that's when you can see the moon illusion. Now the moon illusion is quite strong and even for seasoned astronomers when they've been looking at the moon for many many years they will get tricked by it Um, and it it just sort of takes your breath away when the moon is really low down looks absolutely immense sometimes. So why does this happen? Well, there are lots of theories to try and explain it. One favourite one is that we perceive the sky as a flattened dome above us. So when we see the moon low down and close to the horizon, our brain thinks it must be much further away. And so it applies an internal correction, which then gives us the perception that it must be larger than it actually is. Now you can prove it's no larger than normal by holding out your little finger at arm's length. It'll cover it easily. When the moon gets a bit higher up later on, do the same thing and you'll see that the moon gets covered easily again. So it's actually the same size. In fact, in reality, it's a little bit smaller when it's closer to the horizon, if anything. And that's for two reasons. First of all, the atmosphere refracts or squashes the moon's disk. So it has a vertical height, which is less than normal. Then there's the fact that the moon, when it's close to the horizon, must be approximately an Earth radius further away than if it was directly overhead. So physically, it must actually appear smaller. So the illusion is quite amazing that it can actually produce this effect. Now, if you've got a camera, that doesn't get fooled by the moon illusion. If you see the moon looking huge close to the horizon and you take a photograph of it, you're often disappointed because it doesn't actually convey that sense of immensity of the moon's disk. But there is a way to create that effect. And what you do to do that is to get a long focal length lens or stick your camera on a telescope Now you need a reasonably slow focal ratio for this, say f8, f11 or even higher, 
and set the exposure correctly so you can see a foreground object a long way away, say a building or a structure, and, uh, the, and sort of line up to where you think the moon is going to be rising. In fact, you have to get it exactly where the moon's rising, otherwise you won't get it at all. So once the moon comes up, then start taking your pictures. Now that slow focal ratio should give you a sufficient depth of field to allow you to get the foreground object and the moon in focus. And that will create a picture which does look or does convey that impression of um, an immense lunar disk. So the moon in July is full on the 19th. So that's a good time to go out if the weather is clear and see if you can see this amazing effect for yourself. Next up, we've got an interview with Brad Gibson, a professor from Hull University, who will be telling us what astronomy has ever done for us. Um, yeah, I decided when I was invited to give a talk at Cheltenham that I wanted to try and branch out a little from my traditional talk about uh, the sort of the science that I work on, galaxy formation and evolution, take a step back and, and think a little bit about what astronomy has contributed to us on a day-to-day a -day basis besides just you know, generating lots of spectacular imagery and, and press releases and coverage by BBC, etc., and so I stepped back, surveyed the, the landscape, and looked at some of the spin-off technologies that have come from doing basic astronomy research and identified sort of a half dozen uh, ones that I felt were particularly important. And so where I like to start is, is by, you know, if you pulled out your smartphone and looked at it and just looked at some of the technology that's attached to that smartphone, just because it's something that impacts us on a day-to-day -day basis. And probably the, the most important one or the one that's had the biggest impact uh, on us on a day-to-day -day basis is the invention of Wi-Fi. So Wi-Fi was invented by astronomers who were uh, trying to come up with an experiment to see whether Stephen Hawking's proposed exploding miniature black holes in the early 70s were actually a real thing or not. And so they thought about what, what would they have to do. They needed a big telescope, uh, a big radio telescope, because these things should be popping off in the radio waves. And so there was a great facility in Australia to do this. But what they found when they pointed the telescope at the sky to search for them was there was a lot of static, a lot of background noise. So they had to design a software algorithm inside of a computer to filter through all the background noise to find these exploding miniature black holes. Now, they never found any evidence for them, but the technology that they came up with using something called Fourier transforms was recognized shortly thereafter by the Australian government and a number of other competitors to be incredibly valuable in terms of its applications outside of astronomy. And so the Australian government has filed the exclusive patent, and they hold the exclusive patent for the Wi-Fi standard that's still in use today. And so that's brought them billions of pounds of, of money. And so, again, sort of a, a, a spin-off technology that astronomers and scientists didn't have in mind when they came up with the technology, but just sort of a, one of the key technologies that now impacts us on a day-to-day -day basis. And the other one I like to point out uh, is um, if you use your sat-nav or a GPS system to find your way around the city or the country, GPS works because we have a number of 24 to 32 satellites orbiting the Earth, um, going about 10,000 miles an hour or so, racing around the Earth. It allows us to sort of triangulate onto these satellites and figure out where we are. And it requires two things. First, you have to understand general and special relativity. If you didn't take into account the effects of relativity, GPS would not work. It would not be able to locate where you, were, where you are on the Earth to an accuracy better than sort of 10 to 20 miles or so. And that would get worse and worse every day if you didn't take into that into account relativity. But on top of it, it needs, a, it needs the 
equivalent of, say, lines of latitude and longitude that we have in maps on the Earth. Uh, there isn't lines of latitude and longitude painted on the sky, but what there are are really distant, supermassive black holes that are on the far side of the universe, if you like, and they're so far away that they're effectively fixed on the sky. They don't move, unlike stars and planets and the moon. These things are so far away, we can't see them moving. So one of the jobs of astronomers is to continually monitor these very distant, supermassive black holes and pinpoint the, the, with increasing accuracy and precision their positions. And it's those positions that GPS satellites lock onto and allow us to figure out where you are on the Earth. So again, it's a, a, a technology spin-off that is not something that <clears throat> astronomers had in mind, but it is a service that we provide to governments and telecommunications companies in terms of providing the reference frame that allows GPS to work. So with the GPS, it wasn't just the, the tech spin-off that affected us, it was actually the fundamental science as well. Absolutely. There are astronomers who use radio telescopes to study these, these objects on the far side of the universe, partly because we're interested in the actual mechanics of how these supermassive black holes, uh, how they actually work and what the physics is that's driving them. Uh, but on top of that, the spin-off is because they're so far away and because they don't move on the sky, uh, there's this direct application into allowing GPS to actually work. So it's, it's a little-known uh, fact that it, this is one of the, the jobs, if you like, of, of astronomers is to allow your GPS to continue working. And the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart is uh, something that's called smooth particle hydrodynamics. It's a mouthful, so we're just going to call it SPH. SPH is a, a technique that allows you to figure out how fluids and gases and plasma, how they move. And this is very important in terms of, say, designing cars and designing planes, so automotive and aerospace engineering, designing artificial hearts, blood flow through artificial arteries, um, for uh, climate modeling, oceanography. This technique, um, SPH, was invented by astronomers uh, coming up on 40th anniversary in 1977 as a way to solve the laws of fluids. And it was designed purely as a way to understand how energy got generated inside of stars and carried out to the outer atmosphere of the stars. But again, industry applications outside of astronomy realized right away that this was a very clever algorithm that allows you to solve fluid dynamics very rapidly, very quickly, uh, with, with at very high resolution. And so the applications moved very rapidly beyond basic astronomy research into all of these different areas of, of engineering with industrial applications. So it's one of the again, maybe underappreciated contributions that astronomers have made into wider industrial applications. And certainly from my, from my perspective on a day-to-day -day basis, I use this technique not to study planes and cars and wind flow over, over the turbine of a, of a wind farm, but uh, to study how galaxies form and evolve uh, like our Milky Way galaxy. It sounds like astronomy has really permeated into our lives. Uh, as you said, the smartphone is one of the biggest examples of that. But what would you say has been the biggest spin-off that affects most people's lives? I think for me personally, um, there are lots of other things you can look, you could, I could point to, things like early detection of breast cancer, um, the software techniques that are used to identify um, uh, tumors at an early stage was a partnership between Johns Hopkins Medical School and Space Telescope Science Institute. The, there's the technology of, of at, at border controls um, and X-ray scanning devices. There, these things do are all very important in the grand scheme of things. But probably the single most important thing that astronomy does for us as a whole, and it, 
sort of takes it full circle to where I started, is the is the outreach and engagement aspects of what we do. We are it's a very visual science, uh, spectacular images. It links into the you know the big fundamental unanswered questions that we want to know the answers to. Are we alone? How did we get here? How do planets form? What's the fate of our of our star, the sun? These are the questions that people you know that engages the the public and. We use astronomy and astrophysics as a way to engage with, with the public as well as the next generation of, of scientists and technologists and engineers and mathematics. Uh, this is something that our, you know, our, our country needs a, a, a trained workforce in these what we call the STEM sciences, and that is probably the single most important thing that we do. It's not so much bringing hundreds of people into astronomy and astrophysics to train them as astronomers and astrophysicists. It's, it's to use astronomy and astrophysics as a very powerful way to, to excite the next generation of, of scientists and mathematicians and engineers. And so that is, I think, in some sense, while it's not something you can put your finger on and say, we built this, I think it is true that astronomy is perhaps the, the most powerful of enablers and in terms of attracting people into the sciences and in the math and the engineering. So I think long-term, that probably is the biggest contribution to society, is using astronomy as a way to bring people into these broader subjects that, we, that our workforce desperately needs. Thank you, Brad, for taking the time to talk to us. And hopefully somebody listening at home got really inspired to go out there and do something with astronomy to help other people as well. Right, all that's really left is for us to tell you what is in the next issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. And it's quite a space mission heavy issue. We're looking back at Dawn, which is finally competing its time at uh, Ceres and having been at Vesta before that. And we're looking forward to Juno, which is about to arrive at Jupiter. Mm hmm where it will be examining the uh, gas giants, magnetosphere, and following up on all those tantalising... Um, Elements of the Galileo mission, which was, how long ago was Galileo's? Uh, it was quite a while, a while ago. Can't remember. Decades, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. It's it. Jupiter is not an easy place to get to. I always think we've done a lot more exploration of Jupiter because of Voyager, and yeah. we have so many images of it mm -hmm. and all the fly past. But but it's it's a little bit radiationy. Um, <laughs> it's basically the big problem. Um, you send a you send a, a probe there, and it doesn't last very long. This is the thing they're doing with Juno. It's been uh, set on a course that so it will zip in between the radiation zones as much as possible, mm. just to give it as long a life as it possibly can. Um, also, in this issue, we're going to be looking at how to capture images of star trails, and they're some of the easiest images to take photos of. Uh, you don't need very much kit at all, and they're really beautiful. So. We have a few tutorials on how you can do that with kit list and processing tips. Also, you just heard Pete Lawrence talk about the moon illusion. There's more tips on how to see that in this month's Sky Guide. And finally, as you had a feature about Asteroid Day, which we reflect on because that's 30th of June. 30th of June is Asteroid Day indeed, which is where lots of experts and celebrities basically tell everybody to be worried about how we're all going to die, which is <laughs> a nice cheery concept. But no, it's it's encouraging people to get enthusiastic about um, going out there and looking for asteroids that might potentially harm us um, and how we can go about detecting those. Because if we want to do anything about an asteroid that might wipe out civilization. We need to know it's coming first. And there was one terrifying fact I took home from that mm -hmm. article, wasn't it? Something like there's 200 asteroids in 2016 alone that have passed between Earth and the Moon. Yes. Most of them are small. 
Was that like, is that, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, was it like physically between the Earth and the Moon or just a Moon's distance away? Um, between a Moon's distance away, yeah. Okay, so not they weren't all just kind of zipping in. No. Like we're holding out like a little checkered flag from, come on. There was, the one that, that really worried me is in the first three months of this year, there was one that passed really close to Earth. I think it was 0.08 lunar distances and was about 20 metres large. So... Chelyabinsk we're talking about enough to take out a city wow and we didn't know about it until four days after it had gone past <laughs> what you don't know can't hurt you possibly <laughs> um, but Ian that leads us into something we've got on the bonus content right yeah I've been speaking to uh, Ian Carnelli who's um, heading uh, ACE's um, AIM mission which is the Asteroid Impact mission I wonder um, what that does <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool it's kind of been done in tandem with like a NASA um, mission and what the the ESA spacecraft is going to go up first, take some readings and things like that, and then it's going to step back while um, the NASA spacecraft smashes into the asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's smashing into the the asteroid's moon, I think. Oh yeah, there's, yeah, there's Diddy Moss and then Diddy Moon. Exactly, it's like a yeah asteroid moon system, but basically it's going to kind of then see the effect that that ha- has on the asteroid in order that we can kind of um, mm. put together, you know ways to deflect asteroids, you know, what we can do, kind of... How, how big a Bruce Willis do we need to fire at it to deflect it? It's going to be pretty big, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Maybe like 100 Bruce Willises? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant. We uh, also have our monthly Sky Guide and all the usual equipment reviews. Now, BBC Sky Night magazine is available in print and in several digital formats. You can find out more at skynightmagazine.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. This has been Radio Astronomy. We have been BBC Sky Night Magazine and we'll be back in a month's time. 